Today's message is the submission of Jesus and our grudging obedience, based on Hebrews 5, 1-10. First section, our glaring black eye, our human imperfection. Jesus, by a process of divine appointment and grueling suffering and trusting, has become a perfect high priest for us, the means by which we can be saved. But left to ourselves, our actions reveal a glaring black eye characteristic of everyone who lives to glorify themselves. Our natural inner person seems set automatically to want to protect and promote ourselves, even at the expense of others. This shows up in selfishness, envy, the desire for fame and honor. An elderly man on the beach found a magic lamp. When he rubbed it, a genie appeared and told him he would grant him any wish. The man thought for a while and said, My brother and I had a fight 20 years ago and haven't spoken since. My wish is that he would finally forgive me. The genie clapped his hands, a bright light shot across the sky, and then he said, Your wish has been granted. Then the genie said, You know, most people would have asked for wealth and fame, but you only wanted the love of your brother. Is it because you are old and dying? The man replied, Not at all, but my brother is, and he's worth $60 million. You don't have to look far in the news to see examples of our moral black eye. A 76-year-old Asian-American woman in San Francisco was waiting patiently at the crosswalk this past week for for the pedestrian walk sign to change when she was suddenly struck in the eye. However, with the help of a narrow piece of wood, she engaged her attacker with the result he himself ended up needing to go to the hospital. Give this older gal some credit for her spunk and quick thinking. However, that's not exactly what Jesus would have recommended, for he told his followers to turn the other cheek. But back up a bit to the despicable nature of the initial crime. Who walks up to a 76-year-old man or woman at a stoplight and hits them in the eye? So awful. We don't just suffer from personal moral failure. Sometimes it gets perpetuated and ingrained to the point it's systemic. This past week, one of the top women in Canada's military resigned over its handling of sexual assault incidents. Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor said she was sickened by the military's repeated failures to tackle the abuse. She happens to be a combat veteran of the Afghanistan war served with the special forces, and has long been seen as a role model in the military. Lieutenant Colonel Taylor wrote in her resignation letter, quote, I have spent the past decade speaking publicly and passionately about the gains women have made in the armed forces. While I remain fiercely proud of parts of our organization, on the issue of addressing harmful sexual behavior, we have lost all credibility. And she said, I have been both a victim of and a participant in this damaging cycle of silence, and I am proud of neither. We have a glaring black eye, not just one instance, but systemic. In late February, the chief of defense staff stepped down after an investigation into his conduct was opened, and his predecessor is also facing an investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct. Left to ourselves, we are innately selfish, catering to our passions and human desires. It's in our fallen nature to cast off restraint and live for the moment. There were expressions of shock at the 
not family friendly performance of Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion at this year's Grammys. Yet even there, they had tamed down the lyrics. So go further. What kind of society rewards songs like WAP by debuting it at number one on Billboard Hot 100 and causing it to break the record for the largest opening streaming week for a song in United States history? Somebody is obviously craving such fare. Our glaring black eye is a leering black eye, insatiable, lusting. The Catholic Church is not perfect, but it did get one thing right. Responding to requests for blessing of homosexual unions, the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith determined God, quote, cannot and does not bless sin, end quote, while affirming, quote, God loves every person and the Church does the same, end quote, and rejects all unjust discrimination. God can't bless sin. So how can we ever be put right with God since we sin so often and are messed up morally? Our passage in Hebrews begins by noting the imperfection of even those called to represent people to God in the Old Testament system, the high priest. People need sacrifices presented for their sins, but even the one presenting them has sinned, so has to present a sacrifice for his own sins. Hebrews 5, 1-3 says, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He himself is subjected to weakness, subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. We all fall short. The wages of sin are death, Romans 3.23, 6.23. We need a mediator. Someone who can do the job completely, adequately, but any other mortal is imperfect for such a calling. It's not like you can just announce yourself and presumptuously step up to the plate. Who would qualify? Verse 4, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. On our own devices, we're stuck, hamstrung. Not one of us would be worthy of the assignment. Yet we're all too eager to take honor upon ourselves. We worship our music idols, those who are wealthy, the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezoses. We admire those who make it in the business world or the arts. When you post something on social media and it gets traction, a lot of likes or maybe even some shares, that's a good feeling. It's as if others are honoring you but then it can become addictive living for the likes. It starts to swallow up your time and distract you from those closest to you. We are imperfect as humans. We need a mediator on account of our sins. We love to take honor upon ourselves, to look good, be popular, receive others' praise. But the reward soon fades, leaving us strangely unfulfilled once again. Next section, the perfection of Jesus. While we feel unfulfilled, incomplete, Jesus is complete, perfect, having reached his goal. There are primarily two aspects hinted at here, unto God and for others. First, unto God. 
Note how the author of the letter to the Hebrews describes Jesus' attitude and approach toward his heavenly Father. Verse 5. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. There's an appointment going on here. God the Father designating Jesus as his son. Not that it wasn't already the case, but pronouncing it for the benefit of everybody else, honoring the Son, elevating Jesus' official status. And it's not an honor Jesus reaches out to grab at. It says, he did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. That's very similar language to the passage about Jesus' humility in Philippians 2.6, where it says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus wasn't grabby about being honored and glorified, but humbled himself. The passage in Hebrews describes Jesus' total dependence upon God, casting himself upon his heavenly Father, especially just before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. There is a key phrase right there, reverent submission. Fear of God, one translation puts it, reverence, veneration, piety, seeing God large in your life. Submission is an unpopular word in our culture, and our selfish side is not good at submission. I overheard some dads in our church talking this week about teenage offspring and the eye roll they sometimes get when trying to provide leadership. We too often give God the eye roll instead of revering him and being quick to get on board with God's will. We try everything we can to do it ourselves our own way. Jesus was entirely holy and would have been dismayed and aghast, repulsed and disgusted at being made to bear all our iniquity and shame. But because he constantly chose to align himself with God's purposes, he chose to go through with the cross for our sakes. He reverently submitted. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He learned obedience. Like when he went home from talking to the temple teachers as a young preteen and was submissive to Mary and Joseph. Jesus obeyed. He constantly was careful to remain in sync with what his heavenly father was saying and doing. His was a derivative or utterly dependent relationship, as Henry Blackaby used to point out. John five thirty and 43, Jesus said, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. In John eight twenty nine, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. See how in tune Jesus intentionally stayed with what God was about. God the Father appointed Jesus to this office of high priest no ordinary human could fulfill. This is where those quotes from messianic portions of the Psalms come in. 
Psalm 2.7, quoted in Hebrews 5.5. For God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And Psalm 110, verse 4 in Hebrews 5.6. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus bowed in reverent submission. The Father raised him up, elevated him in his office, establishing him for eternity in that unique role. You see echoes of this in Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. It says, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Jesus' completeness or perfection has to do with his relationship unto God. Second, it has to do with Jesus being for others. Let's revisit verses 1 to 2 to see how these apply to Jesus rather than just the Old Testament Levitical priests. Verse 1 says the high priest is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, NRSV, on their behalf. Did you know Jesus is even now interceding for you? He's your mediator, praying on your behalf to the Father. We see this in Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In Hebrews 7.25, therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Further, verse 2 says the high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. Jesus can deal gently with us because he himself was subject to our human weakness, our frailties. Hebrews 2.17 says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that wonderful? Christ relates to what you're going through. Jesus is fundamentally for others, supporting us, pulling for us, interceding and mediating for us. He sympathizes fully with our hassles and heartaches. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. His earthly existence and suffering qualified Jesus to be appointed our high priest. But now each day he brings salvation to us moment by moment. Hebrews 5, 9. <clears throat> and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He has become the source of your eternal salvation. The one who holds you safe, who protects you, sanctifies you, is carving you each day more closely into his likeness, so you increasingly come to reflect his glory to those around you. Hell is a terrifying prospect, as Jesus described it, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, fire burning, worms not dying, and outer darkness. 
But God has better things in store for those who love him. Jesus saves you from that horror. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next section, priestly or pablum. The context here is the author of the book of Hebrews writing this extended sermon to strengthen early Christ followers and spur them on to maturity of faith. The church was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Similarly, Revelation 1.5 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So, we're to be priests, are we? Go back to those two key phrases describing Jesus as the perfect high priest. How do they apply to us? Unto God and for others. Does that come close to describing our current priorities? What we're living for? Our world is busy living for what someone has called the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. When self is our focus, we won't be aiming unto God or for others. The author of the letter to the Hebrews rebukes his readers for their lackadaisical approach to the Christian walk. Hebrews 5.11 says, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. You're not ready to be priests. You're barely on pablum. Needing milk, not solid food. You're slow to learn. You ought to be teachers by now, but you need someone to go back over the alphabet with you. Can you tell the author's not too impressed? So, how can we address each of these areas unto God and for others? In the unto God department, one option is Pray and Go, a simple program or beginning that gets us out onto the streets of our community, praying for our neighbors, inviting them to send in their prayer requests that we will in turn take and be praying for, seeking to help them with. Read the beginning chapters of Acts and you'll see the early church prayed And then they did the go, starting from Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then the further points of the Roman Empire. Our church can't be healthy and remain inward focused. God wants us to depend upon him and be praying for his kingdom to make inroads where we are. There's also the for others area. Who in your relationships needs you to be Christ with skin on for them? Instead of rushing on with your agenda, can you stop and take time to really pay attention to what they're saying, to help them feel they've been heard and validated? Who's that person in your network that's been feeling so isolated and lonely and your phone call or porch visit would brighten their day? What's that volunteer agency you've been meaning to join but just haven't bothered to take the next step? A little girl's first grade class held its track and field day. 
She won quite a few ribbons, among them one blue ribbon for her first place. Later that day, when she came home, the blue ribbon was missing, and her mother asked what had happened to it. Oh, she said, Bruce was crying because he didn't win a first-place ribbon, so I gave it to him. Her mother hugged her and told her she thought it was very generous to give Bruce the ribbon. Why not, she asked. After all, I know that I won it. That little girl was acting generously for others. If only all of us, adults included, had such a clear idea of what things are really important in life and what things are just decorations. I was pleased to hear in the news that Australia is sharing 8,000 doses of its COVID vaccine with neighboring Papua New Guinea. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison said, There are family, there are friends, there are neighbors, there are partners. They have always stood with us and we will always stand with them. This is in Australia's interests and is in our region's interests. I want to assure the people of Papua New Guinea and my dear friend, PNG Prime Minister James Marape, that Australia, as always, will stand with them as they meet this challenge and support them in every way that we possibly can. End quote. Christians are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be there for others. Often that means sharing resources in practical ways. Uh, section, A Savior Who Really Helps. We've been talking this morning about our moral imperfection as sinners and how greatly we need Jesus as our perfect high priest. He lives life directed unto God and for others. Interceding for you is his ongoing work now. Verse 9. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And Hebrews 4.16 implores us, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We call Jesus Lord, for we belong to him, and he is our master, to whom we now owe that reverent submission. But we also call him Savior, which is more the focus of his being our priest having offered the perfect sinless sacrifice of himself for our sins. I close with an illustration that may help us appreciate more just what being an effective savior means. Let's say a man decides to swim from Sault Ste. Marie to Godrich. That's over 300 kilometers. He hires the finest swim coach to train him and works out with Olympic gold medal winners. He leaves no detail of preparation undone. Finally, the big day arrives. He plunges into the North Channel and begins to swim. 10, 20, 40, 90 kilometers he goes. Eventually, he hits Lake Huron and the open water is becoming more intimidating. The wind kicks up some waves. He begins to realize that he could never swim to Goddard. It's just too far. In vain, he tries to think of an alternative, but there is none. Then, just as he's gasping for air and about to go down for the third time, a motorboat pulls up alongside him. With his last ounce of energy, he calls out, Save me! Please, save me! The owner of the motorboat looks down at our drowning swimmer and says, Friend, you're in trouble. What you need is the waterproof edition of my book on swimming the Great Lakes. It will tell you everything you need to know. Here, catch it! Then, vroom, vroom, off he goes in his boat back to South Baymouth. Obviously, our swimmer needs more than a book. Well, let's suppose that as the swimmer was gasping for his last breath and the motorboat pulls alongside him, he cries, Save me! Please save me! The owner answers, Friend, you're in trouble. 
What you need is someone to show you how to swim. Here, watch me. At that, the boater jumps in and says, The secret is the Australian crawl. Watch my head. See, it's breathe, blow, breathe, blow, breathe, blow. Now, friend, it won't be easy, but if you'll just follow my example, you're sure to make it. Then he climbs back into his boat and vroom, vroom, off he heads to Sarnia. Obviously, our swimmer needs more than an example, a model. Well, let's try again. This time, as our swimmer is gasping for his last breath and the motorboat pulls alongside him and he cries out, Save me! Please, save me! Suppose that the owner leans over the rail and says, Friend, you're in trouble. Even worse, you're drowning. Here, let me save you. And the owner reaches over and grabs the drowning swimmer, pulls him into the boat, sets him down in a chair and gives him some chocolate chip cookies to eat and chocolate milk to drink. After some time, the owner reappears on deck and says to the well-rested swimmer, You know, I saved you from certain death back there. I pulled you out of the water, set you in my chair, and fed you my chocolate chip cookies and chocolate milk. Now, we're only a couple hundred miles from Godrich, and I think it's time that you did something. So, you lazy fellow, get back in the water and swim. Obviously, our swimmer friend is right back where he started, and he surely needs more than an occasional boost or help when things get rough. Let's give it one more try. This time, as our swimmer is gasping for his last breath and the motorboat pulls alongside him and he cries out, Save me! Please, save me! The owner leans over the rail and says, Friend, you're in trouble. Even worse, you're drowning. Here, let me save you. The owner reaches over and grabs the drowning swimmer and pulls him into the boat. Then he sets him down in a chair and gives him some chocolate chip cookies and chocolate milk. The boat takes off. Eventually, Goddard comes into view and the owner heads for the dock. He ties up his boat, picks up the swimmer, carries him across the dock and sets him down with a nice view of the sunset from the old salty restaurant there at the marina. Now, which of these was truly the savior of our drowning swimmer? Why, the last one, of course. He was the only one who completely rescued the swimmer from certain death and took him to a place where there was no threat of drowning again. In a similar manner, God did not write the Bible to give us an instruction book on how to live right, prosper, and get to heaven. Nor did Christ come to show us by example only how to live a life that would be acceptable to God. Nor did Christ come to just help us out for a short period when we needed a little extra boost, but who still expects us to do it on our own. No, Christ was like the boater who did it all for the drowning swimmer, and so became his real Savior. Save to live unto God and for others. Let's pray. Father God, most holy, we do confess we can't do it on our own. Our sins demand a sacrifice more than we can manage. We have fallen short and offended your infinite majesty and holiness. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our perfect high priest. We bless you, Jesus, for persevering through the suffering and hardship, being faithful to the bitter end, even to death on a cross. Make us holy by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see others' needs, to sympathize with them as you do, and to seek your Father's glory in everything we do. In Christ's name, amen.